The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, if everybody's got that written, or if they've copied this down, if they want it, I'll wipe it off. So we've got a clean sheet to start with. Okay, the next link, and I'm not going to dwell too much on this because this is, is PASA, contact. And there's nothing much being said in that, and except really that every, obviously every, um, art, you know, every sensory organ is coming into contact with something. We can't help but contact stuff. So everything is, you know, the eye is palpating the visual field, the ear is palpating the audible field, and so on and so forth, and, the, and you know, the mental field is pal- being palpated as well. So we're always in contact with stuff. We can't ever avoid being in contact. Um, even sensory deprivation work chambers don't work in this model because you know, you're still left with your mental sense contact too. So, you know, you don't escape being in contact with stuff. We're always in contact with the world. This is, this is part of what the Buddha is saying. We're always in contact with it. Um, external phenomena, and that external phenomena is then being seen, perceived in particular ways, and actually the quality of that contact is in a sense being influenced by everything that's preceded it, you know, from avidya to the sankharas, to the consciousness, to the namarupa, to the salayatana, to the six senses, and to the quality of the contact that results out of those dependencies, of those chains of dependencies. So it's not as if we just see, is it? <laughs> you know, not as if we just hear. It all comes in with something. And this is the something. Vedana. Now it really gets interesting. Because <laughs> Vedana is um, feeling. This is a feeling that arises. Now I mentioned this very briefly yesterday, but it's just worth running through yet again. Feeling is the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Sukha, dukkha. Pleasant, unpleasant. In relationship to particularly physical processes. Or samanasa, dominasa, in relationship to mental processes. In other words, everything has a feeling tone to it. And then there is neither of both. Asukha, adukha, asamanasa, adomanasa. You know, these mean that we there is a kind of they're dead zones in our experience. Remember that's the way I was explaining it to you yesterday. Really, when we're talking about neutral, it's not neutral as in neutral. <laughs> I can't think of any other word for it. It's not really neutral. It's just that we don't even perceive it. We don't even see it. It's not there in our experience. It's actually the absence of sukha or dukkha. Somanasa or Domanasa. You know, that's the way our world is divided up. 
You can, I always tend to think this is a pretty good description of it. You know, I like, I dislike, and I couldn't care less. <laughs> you know, that's mostly what's going on. That's yeah, a fairly poverty-stricken world in many senses in that way, isn't it? Now, notice also what's going on, because this will connect with those who are going to come tomorrow, perhaps if I don't put you all off today, <laughs> um, is that the... One of the things about meta, of course, is immediately you have people you like, people you dislike, and those who you feel neutral towards. Now, actually, most people have more problem with that category than any other category. (laughs) (laughs) I remember teaching a long meta retreat at Guy House in England, um, and a lady came along to me and saw me in one of the interviews and said, I actually realized suddenly that there is nobody I don't either like or dislike. It's really difficult to find somebody in your range of experience. <laughs> I can see you're rushing through, <laughs> trying to work through in your minds if there's anybody in this category. But most people we either like or dislike. Who is it who is there in your lives who actually comes in that neutral category? It's quite difficult. I'll leave you with that one as a... Uh, something you can return to. But this is how experiences come to us. Now, and not as easy as this, because this is now in connection, this is where I was explaining it to you yesterday, this is also in connection with the Sankaras. So we've gone all the way back to link two here, because Vedana isn't just Vedana, it's just not the feeling of like or dislike, there is also the Sankara, the narrative, the story or actually, let's put it, the other sense of the word feeling in English, the emotion that comes in with it, which is almost like the rationalization of the feeling. Yeah. How many of you will say, I don't like because? <laughs> and then there's usually an emotion. Pun? It's expected that you would say because. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then that becomes the rationalization, and that's usually the emotion in there. Something I, because I dislike them because of they make me feel this way or whatever, and so it becomes linked into an emotional element. It gets linked into the logic of narrative of the emotions. Yeah. So that's what's occurring at this particular stage. So when we say Vedana is translated as feeling, it's the sensation plus the emotion as well. It's a pretty, I mean, I would actually say this is a pretty good dependence. If you want to see two things supporting each other very, very strongly, then just think about how sensations and feelings and that are supported by the emotional element, by the emotional narrative. It's a very strong concatenation of things coming together in that way um, that gives you a very powerful narrative out of it. Now, out of this... Now, I said that became interesting, and I've only really briefly glossed that. But it comes really interesting now. (laughs) Because, abandon hope all ye you enter here. (laughs) Because this is what we get. Dependent on Vedana is tanha. Craving. Now, craving is, as I've said, I won't emphasize it too much again, but there's enormous pathos. This is, this is the human condition as far as the Buddha is concerned. 
if you think about this, what we've done so far in terms of the chain of dependent origination, it's taken us to this link to actually get to the second of the ennobling truths. Yeah, so we've done all of this sketching in before we actually get to what the Buddha considers to be the absolute proximate cause of our dukkha, craving. Yeah. Now, craving, literal meaning of the word tanha, means basically an unquenchable thirst for things. Yeah. So it's literally by its very nature a thirst that can never be satisfied. It's never going to find any terminal point. Yeah. It's, if you like, the whole idea of Tanha is founded on the feeling of lack within our experience. And when we feel lack, we try to fill it up with something. Yeah. This is what we're trying to do. Actually, Tanha is also productive of the sense of self. Yeah. When do we most feel ourselves? Often when we feel we're lacking something. When there is contentment, i.e. the absence of craving, there is, I would suggest, probably a minimal sense of self. Yeah. So, I spoke very briefly about what I call discrepancy-based process. So the self actually comes into being between where I am and where I want to be, or who I am and what I want to have, or what I want to avoid. So that is when the self is generated between those two processes, where I am and what I want, where I am and what I don't want. Yeah. So really that's when we feel it most strongly. That's when you feel yourselves. Yeah. Here I am again in that moment of lack. So it's productive of the self and continuously generating of the self in that moment. And tanha is not something that, as I say, can come to an end. It can't come to a final point where it finds satiation of any sense here. You could call this, as Jacques Lacan, the great French psychoanalyst did, the endlessness of desire. Yeah. Now, our societies, of course, are very good at producing desire <laughs> and craving. <laughs> you know, it's the way they work is productive of this desire and craving. Yeah. And notice even how the, I don't know, the advertising works for a lot of the goods that we see. They promise a sense of fulfillment through the obtaining of certain material goods. Yeah. They, they hold out that promissory note, don't they? Well, at least until the new model comes out. <laughs> yeah. That's what they're doing. They're con constantly playing with desire. Now, the Buddha deliberately uses the word tanha um, because unlike ordinary thirst, which can be satisfied, there's another word in Pali called papasa, which actually means a thirst that can be quenched. You know, like here, glass of water. I can quench this thirst. But this one can't be. Now, 
I would say, and obviously this is not in the text, but here's your little experiment. Have you ever told yourself this story? If only I had, I'd be happy. <laughs> Pardon? I stopped. You stopped. You're good. <laughs> but usually it doesn't. <laughs> what actually happens is there is an, an infinite, I would say, an infinite sort of progress of if only I hads. Yeah. Or if only, can you, can you just hold on and let me finish? If only I had, if only I was with. You know, all of these kind of stories that we tell ourselves about the possibility of satisfaction or the possibility of fulfilling the lack that we feel. And notice what it's the way it's directed. It's always directed to something external as well. Yeah, it's nearly always directed to something in the external world. Some <coughs> possession, some power some money, some wealth, you know, whatever it might be. It's directed to something external to myself. So the feeling of lack is, is intimately, in, you know, intimately related to external phenomena. And so our search is externally generated. Lack of health, yes, but we can often look for external ways of, of you know, if I only had the right medicine, then I might be better. Yeah, yeah that can be that as well. You want a quick question? I, please do quick. Uh, yeah. It could be. I mean, it, this, this could be. I mean, I, I actually say this. I haven't said the, to this to this particular group here, I often say this, I mean, a lot of this stuff is probably hardwired uh, and probably evolutionary. I mean, we had to, in a sense, have some of this stuff to survive as a species. But this is the big problem with the brain. It's, <laughs> one of the people I work with in Oxford actually says, uh, if there was any argument against design, nobody would have organised a brain like the one we have. <laughs> you know? Basically, because it's in um, it's a kind of in an internecine war with each elements, because you've got the primitive part of the brain, which is probably the evolutionary part, which generates some of this stuff, in relationship with the higher cortical functioning, you know, which is trying to rationalise it, and so you've got both these elements fighting each other. And this is the reason, partly. I mean, I think I wouldn't want to reduce it all to this, but I think it's partly the reason why it's so difficult. You know, to deal with this stuff, it, because if it is hardwired and evolutionary and it fulfilled a function at its time, well, it certainly doesn't do now, most of it. Yeah. In the engineering world, when something is uh, cobbled together a little hastily in a way that kind of works but doesn't work quite, it's called a kludge. <laughs> okay. Okay, yes, all right. <laughs> so what we're doing is trying to sense, and as I would say, you know, it's kind of when we're dealing with craving, we're dealing with something very, very fundamental, really fundamental in our experience. Um, now, this has manifestations, and it has different manifestations. And the first manifestation of it is Kamatanha. This word that keeps occurring again in the various listings. 
And I always say it's Buddhism. It has to have a list. <laughs> you know, and there's three forms of tamha that we see manifest in our experience. You know, the first is this kamma tanha, this craving for sensual pleasures, yeah. for sensuality. Yeah. Now, I don't think that's a difficult one to see in our societies, is it? It's all around us. You know, this constant craving for sensual stuff. Um, and that goes for all of the material possessions. Um, I think it even goes for even intellectual ac- acquisition a lot of the time. It's craving for a kind of the sensuality that comes with getting this stuff that you do. You know, so we're always acquiring. Yeah. Now, Gabriel Marcel, I don't know if anybody's come across him as a French existentialist philosopher, actually said there was a big confusion that went on in our ways of living and being, which was the basic confusion between being and having. And actually, it's very interesting confusion because if you think about any of you know other languages other than English, the first two verbs you learn in any language is to have and to be. Yeah, these are two la- the first two you know, basic forms you learn. And what he's arguing, and I think this ties up very strongly with this, we have this confusion, actually, that we are what we have. Okay. We are what we acquire, rather than just being. We are just being. And that's a, quite a difficult one in our society to get through, because kamatana is so rampant. Now, kama is a f- term that you'll find occurring in all sorts of lists. As you will probably know, it's one of your favorite friends in the hindrances. It's the first one, kamachanda. <laughs> yeah. It's occurring there. It occurs in all sorts of different listings. You know, we are sense-seeking missiles. <laughs> you know, we're searching out for anything that we can get something pleasurable from, trying to squeeze the last drop of sensory pleasure from it. But what you can see within this, and why is this a tanha? Because it's endless, isn't it? It's endless. and actually requires further and further and further stimulation. Greater and greater stimulation. Now, I actually think the model that the Buddha is using, although, again, I wouldn't say that this is obviously within the text because it's not discussed in the text, is an addictive model. This is the model of addiction, where you start off with relatively low dosage and end up with a very high one to try and get the same amount of pleasure from it. So you keep on upping the dosage. And I think we can see that, where the... The computer graphics have got to, ev- got to get even better. You know, the amount of gore has got to be even more. You know, whatever it is, we want more of it. The music's got to be louder. Yeah. And so I think, just as with ordinary kind of substance addictions, there is also an addiction to sensory pleasure. Yeah. Now, this, of course, is kamatanha, but we mustn't forget the next link. I'm really, really can't, in a sense, speak about tanha alone because tanha and upadana actually are absolutely intimately entwined. So it's not just kamatana, but it's the grasping after kamatanha. You know, the attachment to it, the clinging to these sensory pleasures. Now, because we can say, for example, that 
we are in this world, we are sensory beings. We can't help being it. You know, I've got eyes, I've got ears, and unless you go in for those really ascetic practices which try to cut off, um, and actually some of the yoga traditions do that, you find there's very much this idea of pratyahara in Sanskrit, the idea of the, and they actually have the idea of the tortoise withdrawing all its limbs and its head back into the carapace, yeah, into the shell here. Um, and actually you get that impression on them from a lot of monastic practices. That's exactly what you're doing. You're denying the world. You know? I don't think that's what the Buddha's talking about in the slightest in these early texts. It's not clinging to your sensory perceptions. It's not grasping after them. You know, if they come to us, fine. But you, what you guard against is not the sensory perception per se, but the clinging and grasping after the sensory perception. You know, as a means to, for example, trying to find some kind of happiness in this world. Yeah. So I think it's not, you know, otherwise we fall back so easily into these very ascetic practices, you know, which um, require, I think, the, the monastic situations that often you find in Asia. Although I haven't come across many ascetic monasteries, I must admit. <laughs> Most of them are not. Then there is Bhavatanha. The craving to be. Now, I think, again, it's a big manifestation. I think you know, the Buddha is very insightful. Um, two and a half thousand years ago, because this is one of the dominant traits of our culture. Everybody wants to be something. <laughs> yeah. Cult of celebrity. Always wanting to be something in this world. Yeah. Bhavatan has uh, also caught up with novelty, innovation, um, always looking for where the action is. Yeah. As well. It's that kind of stimulus to keep on wanting stuff. Now, not necessarily material, sensual things here, but always wanting to be in the midst of whatever is you know, fashionable going on. You know, an Indian society had its fashionable goings on as well. I mean, Kamatanda, I did a list with some of my students back in the UK, uh, because there's one text that talks about, you know, here is the kind of Kamatanda elements of Indian society, gold, silver, elephants, slave girls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these, these were the elements within ancient Indian society. Now transpose it into modern terms. What would, you, what would your list of the kind of things that would be in that list look like from a modern perspective? Because you can see, actually, although the elements have changed, the kind of possessions that represent having got somewhere through materiality actually haven't. Yeah, in many ways, or the actual psychological condition behind it hasn't changed that much. So these two are intimately linked because actually Bhavatanda, the craving to be, can also be represented by the things I have. Now, all, all too often, again, these are presented as a list of either-ors. Either you've got lots of Kamatanda, either you've got lots of Bhavatanda. I always say also Bhavatanda is the craving to be in its most religious sense, which again I think the Buddha is attacking. You know, the idea of, and I mentioned this very briefly yesterday, immortality. Yeah? Now I would say that's you on a good day. I want to be me forever. 
God, I can't think of anything worse, actually. <laughs> I want to be me forever, you know, and that's the idea of the immortal soul or the Atman. Now, again, I think the Buddha is, is making a, a kind of jibe at the Brahmins with their idea of the Atman and that which is indestructible, immutable. I mean, that idea of the Atman carries through the whole of Indian thought up to the present day. You know, this idea that there is this immutable, indestructible element to the individual. And the most succinct expression of it is actually in the Bhagavad Gita. I don't see anybody know this text, Bhagavad Gita. Um, which again is in line within the Upanishads um, and something that was around at the time of the Buddha. And it says, if you think you kill or you are killed, you are mistaken. The real self is neither produced nor destroyed. I find it extremely moralistically, ethically dubious as a statement. Now, and we've got to remember that the Arjuna and, and Krishna are actually talking on a battlefield. Yeah. It's a wonderful way of justifying, you know, that actually you're not killing the real person if you go out there and you're killed yourself. Well, it's not really you that's killed. <laughs> it's not your real self. Yeah. So, Bhavatanta can have that drive towards immortality within it, you know, to wanting to be you forever with that fully fledged sense. And that could be the, you know, from something like the Christian soul to the idea of the Hindu Atman. Yeah. Something which is completely indestructible. It also, and I suggested this yesterday, that it can be the wish to perpetuate yourself in some form. And it doesn't have to be in that idea that it's going to be me that's going on forever. But it can be at least that I am going on through you, my children. Yeah. And my grandchildren and their grandchildren. And that there is this kind of this link, this direct link here, that somehow that individual is coming through um, the others. And in, in a genetic sense, that probably is true. But this desire to perpetuate yourself in some form. Now, the desire to perpetuate yourself could also be through your good works. There is many a chair, I'm sure there is a universities over here, there's many a chair at Oxford named after the person that set it up or get, donated the money quite a long time ago. Yeah. So, for example, you know, the chair of Sanskrit has a particular name, the Bodhan Professor of Sanskrit, which goes back to the early 19th century. Yeah. It's a good way of getting yourself perpetuated, isn't it? <laughs> There's, uh, it can go on in many different forms. And that, what the Buddha is trying to make clear is that we all have this craving... And it might be not this fully-fledged forms, but it could also be very subtle, the sense of how we wish to see ourselves going on and being perpetuated in some ways. Uh, it can also go down to, and again, I made the suggestion almost flippantly yesterday, but I'll be a bit more, um, I'll be a bit more flippant today, <laughs> which is it might go down to even the writings on your tombstone. Yeah. Now, I, came, I, was, I must tell you this funny story. Because I came across this wonderful... I, when I, I, I do a lot of walking in England, going cross-country and, and visiting ancient churchyards in England, and sometimes you find the most incredible inscriptions on tombstones. And I came across this absolutely, what I thought was hilarious, 
uh, inscription on a tombstone. Talk about one-upmanship in death, this was it. Because it said uh, on the one tomb, and I can't remember the names on it, but it says, herein lies the body of the so-and-so, a proud and virtuous woman the whole of her life, unlike the woman in the other grave. <laughs> Sorry? The other one was humble and virtuous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, as I say, talk about one-upmanship and death. <laughs> or, I'm going to give you one last funny example, which is, uh, do, do any of you know the um, English comedian Spike Milligan? No. Yeah. When he died, he had a particular inscription put on his to- tombstone, which was, I told you I was ill. <laughs> <laughs> But the point is about this, I mean, despite there being very amusing, it's a good way of getting yourself remembered and perpetuated here. So, I'm just going to go on to Vibhava. Yeah, I'm just going to go on to Vibhava. Now, in a way, Bhavatana can be seen as also a kind of libidinal drive for life as well, operating through us in many, many different forms, from the gross to the extremely subtle in our lives, in this desire to keep ourselves perpetuated or in, even in others' memories for as long as possible. However, there's another side to it, which is the darker side, which is Vibhava. Are they two sides of the same coin? No, well, in a sense, one is the negation of the other. You know, if there is a drive towards perpetuation, this is a drive towards extinction. So remember the middle way that was often spoken about, the, dri- uh, the middle way, the much more sort of, not the middle way between household life and the ascetic life, but the middle way between the extremes of perpetuate, you know, of kind of eternalism and nihilism. Here we have the eternalistic idea, the drive that's often within us to want to be forever. Let's just take that as an example. Here is the not wishing to be at all. I don't wish to be. I, it has a very dark side to this because this is also to do with suicidal tendencies. Um, psychologic is also to do with self-harm, any form of self-harm that you're engaged in. Yeah. And also manifests as aggression towards others. So you try to annihilate yourself by, in a way, and I don't mean it's literally, but by, in a way, annihilating the other. Yeah. So I give you a really hard time because actually I want to give myself a really hard time because I don't like being here at all. So it's got a very sad capacity. There's a very sad side to this. You know, these map on very well, for those who are familiar with psychodynamic theory, to Freudian's, the Freud's you know, erotic drive and the um, death drive, or what's called Thanatos in Freud. And they map on quite well. Yeah, because there are, in a way, different moodednesses, if I want to put it that way, in our sense of being in the world. 
And rather than being, you know, here is a character who has all this kind of ego, wants to go on, or here is somebody who has suicidal tendencies, and here's somebody who's tied up with that. This is you. Here's you on a day. You know, because this is how we go through. You know, sometimes we, you know, we're full of sensual desire. Other times we're full of cravings to want to be. You know, wanted to become, actually. Bhava actually has the literal meaning of wanting to become something. You know, I want to become something in my life. You know, often making a mark. Again, I don't want to talk about this too much, but particularly associated with the world, what's called the worldly winds. Play, praise and blame. You know, and all these sorts of things. Wealth and fame. All of these things are associated with becoming something in our life. But then it's all too much of a strain. Yeah. I always say in English, look at this. What a poor, lonely little figure. <laughs> Isn't it? A poor, lonely little figure of a you know, character. I. It's a devil of a job trying to keep yourself together a lot of the time. And... And those times when, for example, depression strikes, then it can feel such an uphill task to try and keep yourself literally together in this life. And that's when you know, the kind of the darker side manifests. And that might be at some point in the day, it's all too much. But then you get caught up in sensual craving again. Now, these are, what I'm trying to say to you is these are not mutually exclusive. In fact, many of the behaviors that we see manifest actually mix them up, and I'll give you one, one example. Kamatana. This might be, I don't know, drinking too much. Actually, kamatana, nice sensations of drinking alcohol. Drinking too much, though, can lead to oblivion. Sense of not being at all. Yeah. It can be manifested also through bhavatana. I am what I have. Yeah. Now I'm making a statement. I am what I have. I'm becoming this person. Yeah, in my acquisition, in the, my acquisition of knowledge and wealth or whatever it might be. So please don't think of these as being any kind of linear process or character types. This is really descriptive of just ordinary everyday processes that we're engaged in. And we're trapped within this. Now, one of the other dimensions of tanha that really we, you know, I haven't emphasized so much at this point is, but tanha actually is governed not just by what we want, but what we don't want. Yeah. What we don't want to happen to us. I would actually say the majority of people, lives probably governed by more things that they don't want to happen in their lives than by what they want to happen to them. In other words, I crave to avoid certain things to ha happen to me. I crave that they don't happen in my life. You know, even Freud's pleasure principle was more about you know, the avoidance of things which were painful than it was about pleasure. Yeah. And this is exactly what's going on with Tanda. It's Janus faced. Yeah, Janus was the Roman god of the door and looked in both directions. Yeah. 
It was Jane's face in that sense. It looked in both ways. That which I want and that which I want to avoid. And it's interplay of these two things. So it's not only if only I was, I'd be happy. If only I didn't have this, I would be happy. If only I wasn't in this situation. So within this, we've got aversion too. Distinct, really powerful elements of aversion working through continuously in our ordinary lives. Aversion craving, aversion craving. It's like this automatic reactiveness all the time. So as we steer our way through life, we're doing that. But this way it comes into the next part, effectively, which is, can I wipe this off the board? Has everybody got that? Now you have to bear in mind, I'm condensing something I usually teach within over, over a week. <laughs> Um, so it's a kind of very much a snapshot. But we have now have upadana. Now it's, this is intimately related. All of these arrows, in some senses, are like this. Upadana. These are really interesting words. Upadana. Let me give you the origin. Again, this is the, another example of the Buddha's brilliant play in, playing on words. In... Um, let me take you back to yesterday, the beginning of yesterday. Remember I talked to you about how Indian society was dominated during the period of the Buddha by Brahmanical rituals. And the rituals would take place around a fire. Well, actually, they took place around three fires. If you went to a temple or to a ceremony, there would be three sacrificial fires burning. Within the home, there would have to be one, but within um, the temples, the mandirs, there would be three fires burning. And if you go to very strict Hindu temples even today, you'll find three sacrificial fires. And they're always kept stoked. They always have to be kept burning. Remember, I connected some of this stuff with um, what was going on yesterday with the language that the Buddha uses, which actually some of it's occurred in this already. For example, to perform your rituals around the fire was actually called sanskara, which is simply the Sanskrit version of sankara. This was to perform a ritual. Yeah. So I'm performing a ritual. The Buddha takes that and now he makes it into a volitional formation, a habit pattern that I build up over a period of time. The outcome of doing my ritual was either good or bad. I kept the gods happy or I didn't keep the gods happy. That was my karma. Yeah. The Buddha turns it into now action with intention. He turns it into something ethical. So karma was just something automatically arose out of whether I bungled my rituals or I actually did them well. I was a good professional and I did my rituals well and kept the gods happy. Um, so he's turned it into something now ethical, this term karma, which was a common word used in Indian society at that, that period of time. Here's another one that goes with the ritual fires. is the word upadana. Well, the word upadana literally means in Pali, it means to fuel a material process and referred to the actual physical act of putting more wood on the fire. Yeah. This is what you were doing. You were actually stoking your fires. Now, probably I, I can see kind of minds starting to click here, because the Buddha refers to something as being three fires. 
Have you come across this? He said there are three fires. The whole world is burning. This is the very famous fire sermon or the fire discourse. The whole world is burning. The world is burning with the three fires of greed, aversion, and delusion. Greed, aversion, and delusion. So he's taken the three fires of Brahmanical ritual and he's now said there's really three fires. Except these three fires are the fires of greed, aversion, and delusion. Now, if you really want to keep your fires stoked, keep on grasping. (laughs) I mean, it shows you the brilliance. I mean, I I have such admiration for the Buddha in the way he did this. Just using the stuff of his own society to keep on making an alternative point. So, keep your fires burning by grasping. By clinging. And in fact, there is another meaning to the word Upadana, which is the way, I don't know if you've looked at a piece of wood, the fire appears to cling to the wood. And the whole element, one of the other aspects of, um, say, Nibbana, and you often find this relationship to um, what the Buddha says, is if the ordinary world of the householder that's represented by Brahmanism is all about fires and sacrifices and rituals and everything else, then the Buddhist path or the path that you're on is about cooling. One is about heating and the other is about cooling. Cooling everything down. Putting the fires out. The fire no longer clings to the wood. So there's absolutely loads of metaphors used around fire. Um, fire was one, of the, was one of the predominant ritual elements in Indian society at that period. And so you know, this is why the Buddha is using so many metaphors of fire. You know, you know, the mind aflame, literally. The senses burning. You know, everything burning from these things. Um, even T.S. Eliot picked up on this. It's in the, it's in the, thought, it's in the um, wasteland. Reference to that particular text, everything is burning. Yeah. So, upadana. So, it's keeping your fires burning by grasping and clinging. Um, in Tibetan illustrations of this, you find a monkey holding on to things. Now, um, particularly fruit, picking fruit and holding on to them. And so, you find within the early text many examples of ways of trapping monkeys used. Um, how to trap your Foolish monkey. And the one typically, there's an example in the Sangyutanakaya of um, the, the foolish monkey who strays into his wrong habitat. The other monkeys won't go there because they're frightened of going out of their own habitat into an area where they might get caught by a hunter. And one of the ways they used to trap monkeys was to put tar down in the forest for you know, animals and particularly monkeys. And that this monkey stumbling through the forest looking for better, better pickings in regard to food, and it stumbles into one of these areas of tar, and it puts its paw in, and it's got its paw stuck. So it tries to get its paw out by putting its foot in to pull the paw out, and now it's got its foot stuck. And then it tries to put its other paw in to pull out its foot and its first paw, and now that's stuck. And then you can imagine what happens. It even gets its head stuck. In the end, I won't tell you what happens to the monkey. It's not very pleasant. Um, (laughs) 
But, um, as the Buddha kind of says, the only way of really getting the monkey unstuck is to put its paw out and to hold on to something which is worthy of holding on to and which it can pull itself out by, which is the Dhamma. This is what he's saying. There's something which is unshakable, which you can pull yourself out, extract yourself with, which is the tree of Dhamma that you can hold on to. And there's another way, and I think this is this one that still goes on in Africa to this day of trapping monkeys. So this one I think is a wonderful metaphor for our entrapment. It's, uh, what they do is they dig a hole in the ground and put a small bowl in which has a neck about that wide in it. And into the bowl they put a piece of fruit. The monkey comes along, smells the fruit, and puts its hand into the, into the, down through the narrow neck and grabs hold of the piece of fruit. You've got one trapped monkey. Because now the monkey won't let go of the piece of fruit. Yeah. Isn't that a wonderful metaphor for our situation? We're entrapped by what we have and won't let go. You won't let go of the stuff even that you're feeling entrapped by. When we think of all the stuff that we have that we don't let go of, now, <laughs> I wanted to share this with you. I, I heard a conversation about three gardens away from me where I live in the UK. And it was one of my neighbours talking to another neighbour of mine. This will tell you about entrapment. Uh, it was talking to another neighbour of mine. And I heard this little phrase, this little uh, conversation drifting over the fence like this. I couldn't possibly lend you that. I don't even use it myself. LAUGHTER Yeah, that is entrapment. <laughs> and so Upadana is about this experience of entrapment by, now, this is, can be images of what we have, who we are. Yeah. It can be, obviously, all the physical stuff that we accumulate, um, that we have around, but we still don't get rid of. Yeah. And so we get swamped by loads and loads and loads of stuff mental and physical that we take on board and won't let go of we do won't in a sense release our grasp and again there's one other aspect these words actually what I call polyvalent they have many many meanings to them Um, and Upadana has another sense of actually a closed hand holding on to something not being able to let go of it as well And so we literally won't, like the monkey, release to find our freedom. We still continue to hold on rather than find our freedom by letting go of what we have. So we're entrapped by what we have. So it's a sobering thought, isn't it? When we don't let go. Now, many of you must must have heard the story about the two monks standing on the river bank there's a lady wanting to cross the river as well. I mean, that's a classic one, you know, where the one monk is going on to the other one after he's carried the monk, the woman over the river, you know. Um, he said, I let go of her, you know, when I put her on the other side of the river. You're still carrying her. <laughs> you know, the one, because he's still going on about it. And that's another way of actually holding on. And you think about that in terms of grievances. You know, malice retribution, thoughts of revenge, all of these things which are the real stuff of primitive human emotions where we don't let go. 
when we're, not, when we're holding on and refusing to let go, to find any sense of spaciousness or freedom in our existence. It's very claustrophobic. I, I, mean, I hope I'm trying to present a picture of that, because it's very claustrophobic. It actually, you know, we get this sense of being confined in a very, very narrow space by it. And so this is what this complex of tanha upadana is doing. And this is, this is the crux of really what we're starting to observe. And this is, in a sense, the, this is the sequence that we're going to observe. There are other aspects that are going to arise after this, but this, in a sense, is the sequence in meditation that we can observe. Contact, feeling, craving, clinging. Yeah. You can really see this. Now, traditionally... Um, a meditation experience, the weakest link to break this is considered to be between that, Vedana and Tanha. Vedana is an automatic arising. Some Vedanas, for example, some feelings are, I would say, hardwired. If I stick my hand on a hot plate and I'm not a masochist, I probably am going to experience that as unpleasant. If I'm a masochist, I'm pretty wired to feeling it as pleasant. So, some of these things we can't do anything about in terms of the Vedana. It actually comes to us, but we can do something about the craving and the clinging that arise subsequently on it. So it's actually to observe this, to ex- actually observe what follows the Vedana when we observe the Vedana. So traditions, as you will know, like the Goenka tradition, spend a lot of time, in fact, their whole practice is virtually devoted to looking at the Vedana, yeah. and particularly bodily Vedana. And this. Um, this is a lot of devotion of their attention. You know, endlessly, endlessly scanning the body, looking at Veda, because then you begin to see the intimacy of this connection you know, between the clinging and the craving as well. And then we can learn to let go. Now, some monastics put the high jump higher and say, you can probably break it there. I personally don't think this is the case. I think this is a case of monastic high jumping again. Try saying, look, we can go one better. We can break it between pasa and vedana, between contact and feeling. Yeah. In experience, I've never seen this as being possible, but I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying I've never personally seen this. Whereas I can see this very clearly, this particular one. Now, I think, again, we have to bear in mind some of the things. I'm, perhaps I'm being provocative again, I don't know. Sometimes we have, to, we have to see the ways that monastics cling on to power yeah, and power and authority. And the power and authority is actually putting the bar higher and higher and higher about what people can do. Yeah. Um, and often that is the case, particularly with this, of saying where you can break the chain of, of dependent origination. Um, here, I mean, Upandita, for example, particularly says, oh, there's no problem, you can do it here. Yeah. But Upandita's Upandita. <laughs> I shall say no more. <laughs> um, but we can break it at this link because we can actually see this really, the Vedana immediately giving rise to that tendency to want to crave to avoid or want to crave to have in our experience. Yeah. And the clinging and grasping to that that immediately comes upon that. In fact, you can't even really in practice separate these two 
Tana Upadana come as a pair. Yeah, you get that. Now, dependent upon Upadana, you get Bhava. Becoming. Now, we've seen this partly in relationship to parts of Tanha, but you know, becoming is we're always in the process of becoming something. We're always wanting to become something. You know, even if it's the being that wants a cup of tea. You know, we're wanting to become something. We're always trying to make a mark in the world in some way. But more actually directly what this refers to in regard to this chain is often the way that we try to become the images that we project of ourselves in the future. Now that might be extremely mundane. I am the person that wants to get a drink. I'm perhaps an alcoholic or something. And I want to get a drink. This becomes the ways that, in a sense, we psychologically and literally manipulate a situation to fulfill what we want. What, who or what we want to become. The one that gets the drink or the one that wants to get the power or whatever it might be. And that will give rise, and this is, I'm doing this very rapidly, and then I want to open this up to some questions because there's a lot in this. This opens up to jati, so actually being born in that situation or another situation as the outcome of this process. Yeah. Now, if I'm, <laughs> I don't know, if I'm the, the drinker who wants to get their drink and in the process of becoming through the grasping and the craving for that drink, um, through the manipulation of the situation to get there, I might find myself being born in the bar. It's as literal as that. Yeah. That's where I find myself. But, and this is the final part of it in a sense, even if you do, you can't go that far. I'm going to have to put the last one up here. We find ourselves in Jaramarana, which literally means old age and death. But it doesn't have to be taken literally because you don't need to take it literally. What it means is that situation is going to decline and disappear. I'm going to drink my drink and the bar's going to close. And then I'm back into this whole situation again. Now, that's a very crude example there, but you can see how that work that cycle of addiction can become, that you can be trapped in that cycle of addiction from the confusion that associates this way, whatever it might be, and I've given you an example, obviously, of drink, but it could be anything of expecting something to provide me with happiness, the sankharas which concretize and con contract around that idea to actually finding yourself in the situation of getting or actually not getting it. Not getting where you are, but you're always born in a situation. In other words, what you mean is you always find yourself somewhere as an outcome of your psychological processes. Yeah. Your psychological processes, even if you don't get you what you want, get you somewhere. Probably into further misery. 
Now, I, just, I kind of jest about that, but it's also quite serious that we're always finding ourselves in a situation. But whatever situation we find ourselves in is going to decline and it's going to disappear. And it's going to be replaced by another one. And this is an ongoing process happening in every moment. You know, this is the way that we can read this within the early text, and it's supported by Abadama readings as well, of reading this process of going on in every, every moment. So it doesn't have to be taken on this kind of three-lifetime interpretation, which seems to me to be kind of diffuse the power of what this is actually talking about, which is psychological process going on right here, right now, right at this absolute very moment, so that this actually represents the cycle of dependent origination, represents your past and your present and your future, right now. Because you are your past, your present, and future as you sit on your chairs. <laughs> yeah. You will, you know, something will come which is going to be your future, which is your next moment. So I've spoken a lot about dependent origination, so <laughs> but this is still very much a snapshot of it. There's, there's so much profundity to this particular um, dimension of the Buddha's teaching. As I said yesterday and I've said today, I think this is the summum bonum of the Buddha's actual practical ways of getting out of samsaric experience. If we truly begin to understand this, and particularly see this sequence in action, then you can start to do something about it. You can start to operate within your laboratory of your experience and start to begin right now to do something about it. To see craving and to, in a way, almost surf the craving. Go with it. Because what you'll find is, anything that's arising in the mind, well, what happens to it? It arises and it passes away. Interesting, isn't it? (laughs) We take it so seriously and we hold on to it. Yet all it's doing is arising and passing away. Yeah. I mean, I feel that thoughts actually really should have a little label attached to them. It just says, just passing through. Because <laughs> yeah. that's all they're doing, just passing through. Okay. That's new to Vedana. I've, I've seen writings and so on. Is limited to the bare biological dislike, to the on-off neutral. Mm-hmm. Are you? Can you document somewhere in this, in the early texts, where it, it's extended to propanja and proliferation and memory? And yeah, Madhupindika, the Madhupindika Sutta, the Honeyball Sutta. Honeyball. Yeah. Yeah, and in the Honeyball Sutta, it gives you the whole sequence of the cognitive process. It's the only place in the canon which gives you so much detail on the cognitive process, what's actually going on. And basically, you can reduce the sequence to this, although it's a bit more complicated than this. That which one contacts, that one feels. That which one feels, one thinks about. That which one thinks about, one proliferates. Says it all. 
That is why we get caught. And he said, upon that which one proliferates results all strife, all conflict. He said, actually, the resorting to rods and weapons is the term that the Buddha uses. But look at the Madhupindaka Sutta, the, the honeyball sutta. Um, I mean, in, actually, in the UK, I've been spending quite a lot of time going through with some of my students, just going through it literally line by line. It's because it's such an important sutta. Yeah. It's in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's in the middle-length discourses. So thank you for mentioning that tanha and, uh, well, basically, craving and clinging come as a pair, because that's in general my experience. But then you were saying, and I also have this experience, where craving can arise, but we can also let it pass mm. and say that's just a craving, and we're not actually clinging. So, so it sounds like both can be true. Yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, in our, in our experience, we can see this. I mean, with training, this is what we're talking about, with training, we don't have to go with the, with the craving that arises immediately on the experience of a feeling. You know, on the rising of Vedana, we just don't have to go with the with the craving that arises. And I think sometimes we do see this in our experience because you can see the desire, let's put it as the word desire, it's a bit more approachable sometimes than craving. We can see the desire for something arising. And if you sit with it for a few minutes, and particularly when you're sitting in meditation, because you can often get this desire and this feeling or craving for something within it, but you sit there, and unless you're going to leap off your seat, you know, what you do is you watch it arise and you can see it pass away. You can see this in relation sometimes, I'm sure most of you probably had this experience, sometimes when somebody's irritated and you feel the anger arising and suddenly you feel, oh yes. And it's kind of gone. You know, you've stayed with it long enough just to see it and to surf it, to ride it, and to go with it. Now, it's not always, and I'm not going to even suggest it is, it's not always comfortable. You know, what we're doing is, in a certain sense, in the initial stages in meditation, is beginning to train ourselves in discomfort. Because you know? automatically, it's a bit like the, um, the itch you get. And this is why, obviously, instructions in meditation is not to move. You know, to stay, unless it's really, really uncomfortable, not to automatically kind of scratch and it, you know, scratch itches that arise, or if you've got a slight discomfort in your leg, to shuffle around and get discomfort. Because we can do this automatically. So it's observing the uncomfortableness of it. Now, I'm talking about physical phenomena here, but also this is with mental phenomena, that we don't actually have to automatically react, and this is what I'm talking about, to discomfort. We can actually stay with discomfort and see that discomfort actually is exacerbated when we literally leap into it and try to do something about it. Because you'll find if you start scratching one itch, another one will rise somewhere else. If you've got one pain uh, in your body and you react to that, you'll find another one arises somewhere else. And so you're constantly shuffling around. And if you think of that mentally, that's exactly what we're doing. You know, that it's actually proliferating more and more thought, more and more stuff we're trying to avoid. Yeah. It's like saying, don't think. What will happen? <laughs> or don't think of the elephant in the room. <laughs> 
you know, it's automatically the mind is grasping after it and trying to you know, kind of fulfill it. So we're just riding it, learning to ride that. Hi. Hi. Um, can you talk about the self, how Buddha sees the self as well as nirvana? And I appreciate, it seems like uh, from today's talk that Buddha is a great psychologist, psychologist. Mm -hmm. but from a spiritual point of view, what does he say about the self and nirvana? Self and nirvana. Well, we did, we did part of the self yesterday, but I mean, the self... The self you have to hear is process. The self is a process. It's not a thing. Now, this is the Buddha's argument. It's not, the argument is not that there is no self. I don't even mind repeating this again because I think it's such an important dimension even for those who heard it yesterday. The self is not a thing. It's a process. It's something that is a convention. It's a very useful convention. And for example, it brackets our experience and saying, this is my experience, it's not your experience. You know, it's my experience here. But we don't have to attribute something solid to that sense of my, I, mine. These are words we have that reify our sense of self quite often. So actually we begin to live, and I think this is what the Buddha is really trying to talk about, is we live the self as an expansive process rather than as a contraction. Yeah. we live it more lightly is another way of putting this yeah, we take ourselves terribly seriously yeah, everything that crosses the, I don't know, the, the path of the self is terribly serious yeah. but this is actually living it in a much more uh, in a much lighter fashion so we live this, you know, not my phrase Andy Alensky's phrase um, we live the self as the verb not as a thing, as a noun that we are. Now, in that way, you're talking about nibbana. Well, what is nibbana? Well, nibbana um, is simply the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. Yeah. Now, it's greed, it's greed, aversion, and delusion, which, of course, are helped to reify the self. When, for example, tanha, which is simply another synonym for greed, in a way. Um, it's partly there because it's actually both, in, because greed and aversion are both within tanha because it's this Janus face thing as I've spoken about. Well, the self is coming into being through that. With the absence of greed, aversion and delusion, there is no sense of solid self there. Nibbana, I mean, literally means gone out. It means the going out of the three fires, which uphold that sense of selfing in that much more contracted sense of selfing in the world. And I think this is really a question. I mean, from a practical point of view, and I always try to bring these things back to practicalities, how do we want to live this world? Do we want to live it as a kind of contracted being, contracted around the notion of something which is actually not existent, which is a fixed self, or do we want to live it in a spacious, expansive sense where we can be responsive as opposed to being simply reactive? Selves as nouns react. Selfing as verb responds. That's the big difference between the two. Yeah. 
So that movement from reactiveness of contraction to the responsiveness of openness and um, spaciousness. Now, there's one thing we haven't talked about, and, and perhaps I'll mention this, start on this day, because it's related to this. And I'm only going to say this because later traditions get into such... How would I put it? They get into, into such sort of um, tangles about this notion of emptiness. Yeah, because this is associated with this. Because actually the self is empty. What is it empty of? It's empty of any inherent contracted existence. End of story. That's all it is. But I'll say a bit more about that when the questions are finished. But I want to, the questions are quite important. But I hope that's helped a bit. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. Thank you. Uh, okay, you mentioned yesterday, uh, not self. There's no, you know, it's a. Now you said no fixed self. Uh, can we say wh what would you say about the changing self, non-fixed self? And mm -hmm. we 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 have to perform mm -hmm. certain functions and roles in this world. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a self, in a sense, uh, uh, you know, defined by various roles and functions we perform. Yep. <laughs> okay, let me say something about this. This is, I mean, it's, again, it's related to the previous question. Well, there's two ways of living, the kind of things that we do. One, again, is, and I'm going to use this word deliberately, one is contracted around the notion of what we do, you know, particularly if you've got a profession and things we have to do in life. We can create an identity out of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. We can create identity out of, I don't know, a profession, you know, um, profession of being a doctor, a teacher, a mother, a lawyer, whatever it is. That's who I am. I am what I do now. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, Actually, I'll give you an example. I actually heard the best answer to the question um, when I was in South Africa about 22 years ago teaching. And I asked somebody, question, the usual question actually often most of us ask about somebody when you first meet them, what, what do you do? Yeah. And he gave the most marvellous answer. He said, I play at being professor of linguistics. And it, I think that's such a good answer because, in a way, he wasn't diminishing it or saying this wasn't serious or didn't take his responsibilities serious, but in a sense, there is a play to it. You are not it. Yeah. So what I think the Buddha is trying to get us to see is the way that we try to create, create identity out of any mode of being that we can uh, inhabit. So it could be, you know, I am a professor of linguistics. Or I am a waiter. I am this. And that's a reductionism. You've just now reduced yourself to, to, to something. Yeah? And often, actually, I think this occurs, this is not within the text, but this often occurs psychologically, I think, because of the fear of not being anything. Yeah? Now, 
This is the reason why, actually, we're so deeply attached to our dukkha. It sounds an odd thing to say, isn't it? Our dukkha gives us a sense of identity. Who we are. I am my misery. <laughs> yeah. People can become the set of their symptoms. Now, at least I know who I am now. I am my symptoms. Yeah. And I'm kind of doing this slightly tongue-in-cheek, but what I'm trying to say is we can try and create identity out of anything. And what this not-self or not-fix-self is, is actually a spacious process where I'm not tied to being any one thing. That's the whole thing about this notion, is it opens up possibilities for us. You know, I'm not, you know, for example, if I've got a psychological condition and let's say I am, I think I'm, I think I'm a depressive. Well, actually, you're probably far more than that. You know, that might be a good you know, reason for opening up to other possibilities of being or seeing other aspects of what's going on in your mental states and so on and so forth because then you can see other ways of being in the world other than relating through a a particular diagnosis and symptomatology to it. You know, so we're opening up other possibilities of being. That's really, I think, what the Buddha is saying because, and this is the important part about it from the Buddhist point perspective, from his perspective, is that at the moment we are in sangsara with all the dukkha, with all of the contractions, with all of the... Um, Kilesas, all the defilements and everything else that the Buddha speaks about, but we don't have to be it. That's the hope. And we can only not be those things if they're not fixed. Yeah. And if there's other possibility. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Back to your uh, dependent origin origination. You say these arise instantaneously, right? This is not like over a period of years. I mean, mm. from, from contact to feeling to thirst, well, they, they, they arise together, right? The one doesn't cause the other, so they, they, mm. they're conditioned by each other. But are they that quick? Yeah. They're going that quick. This is the reason why it's difficult to perceive it. Yeah. This is why we engage in the practice of bhavana, of cultivation, cultivating attention to what's going on. Now, <clears throat> in order to see the process, let's um, think about two fundamental things that has to have to be there. Interest and curiosity. You've got to be interested and you've got to be curious about what's going on in your experience. So initially we start off with what I call inchoate experience. There's just stuff going on. And the more you begin to look with curiosity at the stuff going on, the more you begin to discern. You begin to discern patterns. Remember I use that as one of the synonyms for dependent origination. You begin to discover patterns in your experience that come up. I mean, has anybody done this when it's been meditating? I mean, it gets laughable at times. Yeah, here it goes again. Here's the old anxiety. Yet again. <laughs> <laughs> you know. 
Okay. Hello, aversion. <laughs> you know, because they're coming up again and again. So you get this various patterning that's there and you begin to discern that. Now, it, in a sense, what you're doing is getting in close. You know, going from kind of a, a big shot down to a smaller shot, getting down to then looking closer and closer and closer at the various elements that start to form that patterning. And in doing that, you're starting to slow the process down. You're starting to slow that process down. Still going pretty quickly, but it's going a lot slower when you're on the cushion than it is when you're out in ordinary life. Because usually what happens in this thing is somebody's nasty to you, you know, contact. Somebody's nasty to you, unpleasant feeling, I'm annoyed. And it happens there. And I'm probably saying something I didn't wish to have said. Happens in the car every time I get on the freeway, you know, <laughs> just like that. I'm yeah. Meditating, pleasant, and all of a sudden, it's so quick. Yeah. Anger. And if you think about your ordinary day, I mean, if, you, if you want to see over a bigger sense of temporality, think of the ordinary day. You can often go out in the morning, good intentions, go out with good intentions, by you know, walking to the end of the block and it's been completely screwed up. You know, something's happened that's come up in your experience and then it's gone. Now, what's hijacked that intention? Well, it's the automatic nature of this. That's what's hijacked it. Yeah. So, if that's the case, if our intentions can be so easily overrode if we have even good intentions, then we have to start looking at what's going on in the automaticity of this. Yeah. This is where we start to regain our freedom from it, in beginning to look at that. Now, I don't underestimate, and this is why I said it, that you have to have interest and curiosity. I often start off you know, Vipassana retreats, when I teach Vipassana retreats, by saying, here's your one question that you've got to sit with. What the hell's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Let's get it right down to basics, because if you haven't got that question, what is going on here? However you want to put it, you, know, you haven't got the interest or the curiosity to start to examine it and start to tease it apart, to, te- to start to see the patternings in your experience, um, to stay with the difficulties as well. But that's what, what you're doing. You know. It is happening that quickly, though, normally. <laughs> the holder of the microphone. <laughs> Is that why it, uh, this is translated as uh, 12 links of co-origination often? Co-origination, yeah. Co-conditioned genesis is another translation for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this may, be inter- this may be interpreted as a Buddhist model of a mental process. A meta-process, yeah, it can be. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, a proce- it's, a, it's a process. It's not entirely exhaustive in the sense that you, you could break this down even further. You know, in Western psychological terms, you could even begin to break this down even further. But this is enough that you need to know in order to get into the process. Yeah. You don't need to know much more than this. Mm-hmm. Now, if we left it as simply a meta-process, we can leave it as a metacognitive theory. Mm-hmm. That's not going to get us anywhere. No, yeah. We've got to get this metacognitive theory down back into 
embodied experience and beginning to see it with embodied experience. And that's where we start to, well, where it starts to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you start to see that. Without, without that, it just remains up there. It remains a nice intellectual theory. What you're saying is that we should actually experience this process in meditation. Yeah. You will experience this process in meditation. I just want to spot check. I heard you right earlier. You said that the self that is contracted is more likely to be reactive rather than responsible. Um, Did I hear that right? Well, I didn't say responsible. I said more likely to be reactive than responsive. Oh, responsive. Yes. I I see. Okay. Yeah, that's a very important distinction there. So, um, I've been kind of thinking about how to be proactive and preemptive here, and Usually what we're told is between Vedna and Tanha is where we can intervene. Mm. But really reflecting on your comments about our um, personalities, the way we're organized, thoughts, beliefs, ideas, habits. I wonder if we can't go back to the sankharas and begin to uh, explore them, begin mm. to kind of spot trouble and patterns, and rather than being kind of I guess ambushed or taken by surprise, why not kind of you know here you know we've already have a battle plan with some idea or understanding developing mm. around that I think it's a very good strategy i mean it's one I do encourage is it's not an either or i mean the, in many ways, when we start to spot the sankharas um, what you're starting to do then spot habit patterns you're starting to spot some um, proclivities and behavior. The moment we start to do that, you're into looking at the narratives that support those behaviours and actually then begin to support this process. So it's very useful to do that, and actually that's part of what you're doing. So it's not, yeah, I think that is the traditional view, this is the weakest point, and you can see this. And actually, for those of you who are beginning meditation, even those who have very little experience, you can start to see this straight away. You know, but with more experience, you're starting to see actually the patterning of the sankharas and how they inform even our patterns of craving. Yeah. What, we're, what we're aversive to and what we're wanting. Right. Because if I don't care what people think of me, let's say, um, if I don't care what people think of me, someone can say, you're not very bright. Because of my sankharas around not being attached to that, I wouldn't experience experience that as painful Vedna. But for mm. someone who cares greatly about being brilliant, that same comment could create a whole flood of discomfort and pain. And yes, that's exactly right. Yes, I mean, remember that um, the Sankara is a deeply responsible sense of identity. Yeah, these, these are Sankaras are us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, this is in a sense the way we feel because they are so they are so heartfelt in many and heart experienced these things that they are feeding the whole process. You know, they, these, this is I mean, there's a word used in Pali which is ahara. They feed the mechanism as well, just like we feed the fires. Yeah. We keep on feeding the mechanism by 
actually reinforcing the sankharas that we have. You know, even you know, in my silly example I gave, you know, when saying a, um, a habit of yours is ch- challenged and you defend yourself, well, in a sense, you start to feed it again. You're backing up into it and feeding it. Yeah. One more thing, I'm sorry, but it, it's hard to see them because it feels true. They're always saying, I'm true. <laughs> <laughs> Remember what I said, trust, trust me, I'm, trying, I'm telling you stories. <laughs> this, is, this is what they're doing. Yeah, this is why the sankharas are so difficult ultimately to get into. I mean, we can get into to them and it's very useful to see them, but you're not going to get into the totality in a way. Um, the process is actually unwinding the chain unwinding it. I mean, you can use many different metaphors or images, and they are metaphors and images, and I think, I think we have to be aware of that. But, you know, if I had this drawn up, I haven't, fortunately I haven't got a big enough blackboard, but um, if you drew the whole thing up, I could show you much more of the relationship of them within the circle, as opposed to just seeing them in the way that I've described them so far. Because they're all interacting with each other. You know, the Sankaras are feeding into Bhava, you know, into my ways of being. Um, Bhava itself, who I want to be, is feeding into my sankharas. And that is being fed by the cravings that I have, which are being fed by the sankharas. I can't do this, but it's much better to graphically illustrate this, but this is what's happening. So they're all kind of, you know, if you want to draw lines all over the place, this is what you would be seeing. So it is this mutually supporting system that's going on. Yet, interestingly enough, the moment you start, it's a bit like a piece of wool, the moment you start to pull a piece of thread, it starts to unravel. And bits start to fall out of it. Now, it's not as if you're going to pull and get the whole chain to drop apart at this stage, but even if you just start to pull it slightly, it starts to loosen. Now, this is what I'm saying about the interest and curiosity, it's a bit like pulling your piece of cotton, or your piece of thread when it starts to, starts to begin to unravel. The moment you've begun on that process, you are, or who you think you are, is starting to unravel. Yeah. Now, I would say that that is actually, and I would want to <laughs> communicate this to you, is actually a very exciting process. And I don't mean that in getting overstimulated, but just the fact we open up to other possibilities of being. Yeah other ways of being in this world, much more responsive ba- ways of being in this world. And it comes back to you know, the fact that I can, instead of being this contracted, rather, I don't know, sort of <coughs> driven creature through greed, aversion and delusion, that suddenly the manifestation of um, metta can be present in my experience towards myself towards others. Yeah. This is the way of holding all of what's going on. And I'll say much more about this tomorrow, but the metta is the way of holding the difficulty. Yeah. And I'm not saying this is an easy process, and the Buddha never says it's an easy process by any means. Um, but it's how we hold that, and we have to hold that um, with metta. We have to hold it with friendliness. Now, <clears throat> One of the words that I really do not like that is found in the canon and got absolutely um, terrible translations often is nibida, is disgust. 
you know, with things. I think the best translation for this word is disenchantment. Starting to become disenchanted with the patterns that have seemed so seductive and the ways of doing things which have seduced us. Yeah. You know, rather than being disgusted with the world, which is, again, it's a very Theravadan thing, you know, traditional Theravada. Uh, and then it's reflected in the asceticism that you see practiced a lot of the time. Uh, and actually, I'm afraid, <laughs> I, if, if my introduction to Buddhism had been first through Burmese Buddhism, I don't think I'd ever become a Buddhist or became involved in it, simply because I was, you know, my, luckily my introduction was through Tibetans who were very joyful about it all. You know, um, but to kind of see that kind of disgusted side of it, whereas actually I think what the Buddha means is we become increasingly disenchanted by the patterns which have seemed so seductive to us you know, in the past. We progressively see that we're no longer seduced by the magical game that's being played by it. Now, I would say, you know, it's not that I get disgusted with, I don't know, karma, with sensuality. It's that I become disenchanted with it as being a way of finding my sense of being in this world. Again, we can go off into the heavy, what I call heavy-handed religious stuff. And I really don't think, you know, and I'm giving you a very personal message here, I really do not think from my reading of the text that's what the Buddha's doing at all. That goes back to Hindu asceticism again, coming back in, Brahmanization. The history of Buddhism, and I might add this perhaps a kind of on the back of the question, the history of Buddhism is being one of creeping Brahmanization and Sanskritization. <laughs> yeah. It really has. I mean, it's a way of putting it, because everything that the Buddha tried to cut out, to stop, starts to creep back slowly through the history of Buddhism. Yeah. it's no accident and there's many ways of interpreting this but you know one of the four great clingings is the clinging Silabhata Paramasa the clingings to rites and rituals yeah. the clinging to rites and rituals what has Buddhism become full of? rites and rituals yeah. do you think it's more um, the clinging to rites and rituals or more practicality that at some point Buddhism died out in India and Hinduism had a resurrection that more the lay people that attracted them and that keeps the Sangha going? That's a big question. It's a big comment question. Um, the, the reason why Buddhism died out in India is because it became increasingly more monastic and scholastic and increasingly divorced from practical concerns. Yeah, there was the other factor, which was um, Muslim incursions into later, later India, uh, resurgence of Hinduism, particularly through philosophies that parodied or mirrored forms of what was going on. So, for example, Shankara, who's the great founder of the kind of Advaita tradition, really is parodying and mirroring some of Nagarjuna's arguments yeah, within it. But I think what it actually does is it um, loses touch with people. This is the reason why Buddhism died out in India. And um, I, I use the word creeping Sanskritization de- uh, deliberately because the Buddha himself, and you probably know this, but when he was approached in the Vinaya 
and asked, should we compose our texts and should we use Sanskrit, the Buddha says, absolutely not. Now, his was a, a, a path that was to, to be communicated in ordinary vernacular languages, you know, of which Pali is just a reflection of that. That's all it is. It's just a formalized reflection of the vernacular languages that the Buddha was using. Sanskrit was the language of the intellectuals. And that starts, you know, by the third, end of the 3rd century BCE, depending on when you put the Buddha's death, but I put it about 400 BCE, by the end of the 3rd century BCE, texts are starting to be composed in Sanskrit. Buddhist texts. Which meant that ordinary people had no access to that stuff at all. And it, so it became increasingly cut off from the mainstream of what the Buddhist teaching was. So I think that results in it, and then you get the, the Hinduization of it in the sense of the coming back into it of lots of ritual um, and stuff like that. I mean, it's a big story I could give you, but I won't go on <laughs> uh, about what actually happens in the history of Buddhism. By the time you get to the dissemination of Buddhism in Tibet, that's, that's an interesting period because you've got the kind of zenith or the apogee of what's going on in India, the rising of Tantra, the great Buddhist teachers who went to Tibet came out of the two tantric areas of India, Bengal and Kashmir, which were also the major areas of Hindu tantra at that period. And so there was this intermixing of Hinduism with Buddhism, and that's what the Tibetans got, and that's why the Tibetans are so highly ritualistic. Yeah. They even perform fire pujas, yeah, which is actually the Brahmanical fire puja. Yeah. So, again, it's a response... <laughs> I could, could go on about that one. <laughs> I have two questions. Okay. Um, the first one um, arose in my meditation group. Um, <clears throat> one lady who, hit, uh, who is really experienced in sitting for long hours, and I am not. <laughs> and so um, this... So if you sit, you know, with cross legs, and if you have this pain coming up and you're really tempted to move your legs and, you know, this way and that, that way, uh, and the, um, that's, you know, that experience itself, as you said, it's uh, transferred to our mental experiences and psychological, and, mm. and I see it, but if you, uh, if you really try to, in order to rise above it, in order to really push it to its kind of limit, and you, um, you kind of push your body, you really punish your body. Mm. Um, and that's what I kind of, I was afraid. It wasn't my fear. Um, so in... Um, so my question is, is, is it another form of kind of clinging, uh, clinging to or attach, attaching yourself to, like, you know, body as a non, mm. as a, a kind of subje subjecting it to, as a, you know, to a secondary, to your mind? Is it a, so I'm, I, <clears throat> what I want to hear is in relation to, um, I guess, middle way, understanding of middle way, because I am 
I have really a beginner level of understanding, a middle way, so I mm. want to hear what you say okay, about well, that. Well, the first thing I would say is anybody who's mm, going to sit for long periods should find themselves a position where they know they can sit for long periods without undue pain. Now, I think if that's a chair or a meditation bench, or if you can sit cross-legged, that's fine. But often this is associated with images. You know, good Buddhists sit on the floor. <laughs> can be the idea, you know, and that can lead to a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, and actually a lot of injury sometimes. And I think actually it's often reflected in that. And, and sometimes the tradition encourages this, you know, just sit with the pain. Right. And that becomes a grin and bear it stuff. Right. You're not meditating. All you're doing is experiencing intense pain a lot of the time. Right. So it's better to get yourself into a position that you, you're not going to experience intense pain, particularly if you can sit in over long periods of time and you experience if you've sat for an hour or whatever, however long it might be and you've had really bad pains in your knees. Don't sit cross-legged. Sit on a chair. Okay. Yeah, and I do think a part of it is denigration of the body. Right. Uh, I think it drops back into asceticism. Give your body a hard time. Yeah. Um, and because the body is really secondary, it's what the mind that counts. Right. But actually, most of the mind is caught up in actually real deep aversion to what's going on in the body. <laughs> yeah, that is not the purpose of meditation practice. It really isn't. And actually, I would add to this, one of the things that's lacking in a lot of this practice is, is there's no metta. There is no kindness. There is no um, genuine sense of friendliness towards... Your, your body, your embodiment as well. And without that, it, becomes a, it can become a brutalization process. Um, so I think it's really, really important that people do spend some time um, experimenting with posture, and particularly in beginning stages, uh, to find out what the posture, if they're going to sit for long periods of time, however long you decide to sit, that you know that you can sit I wouldn't say without any discomfort, because no matter where you sit, you're probably going to get some discomfort, right. but without real pain being generated. I, I, I see no virtue in pain. In fact, the Buddha, the Buddha at one time, uh, the giants came along who gave themselves their bodies an awful hard time and saying, we think we can li liberate ourselves um, and find happiness, happiness through pain. Right. And the Buddha says... I don't teach happiness through pain. I only teach happiness through happiness. Yeah. Not through pain. Yeah. And I think that's really important to remember. The Buddha wasn't actually encouraging. He didn't like ascetic practices. In fact, he really limited them. Again, you've got Brahmins within the thing who wanted to do ascetic practices, and he stopped them. You know, he gave them and said, well, if you want to do them, these are the only ones you can do. But you know, coming back to the main point of your thing, of your question, it's really, really important to find posture and experiment with posture. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for yeah. that. Um, the second second question um, um, is uh, coming from my personal experience. Um, may, maybe you know, say, in my earlier life, um, when I have a conflict, I tend to sit, um, you know, with that conflict. Um, and I and I followed advice of Carl Jung. What he said was, you straddle those two opposites, the issues that that you are really conflicted with, mm -hmm. like A decision and the B decision, decision A and decision B. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that takes long process of, you know, enduring pain and, in, you know, um, and confusion. Mm. And um, I just want to hear um, uh, from Buddhist, Buddhist perspective, I want to hear your um, view on that um, in relation to, like, is it, a, is it an idea of uh, informing idea from the understanding of middle way? Is there, what does Buddhist say about that? Okay. How do you bring yourself closer to, how do you actually um, bring yourself closer to where you are at the point and what is better way of, of uh, moving on to the next stage in a kinder way than what <clears throat> Jung advocated? Okay, a kinder way of doing this. Yes. Can I cut really to the, cut right to it? Yes. Actually, the first thing is don't get caught up in, in rumination. Don't get caught up in ruminating about conflictual thoughts. Go to something really practical. Go to, to where you experience that conflict in your body. What's going on? You know, because the thing is, the tendency is to want to try and solve our problems. By, you know, because, again, we elevate the mind. Um, we experience... You know, um, conflict within the mind and we pay very little cognizance of how we actually experience that how we actually experience it and the pain is coming from ruminating just going round and round and round and round and round off and I mean this is stuff I'm sure we all know keeps you awake at night when you're trying to solve a problem when you've got position A and position B and they both look like equally bad or equally good and you can't make a decision about them. And a really practical way of doing this, of beginning to let that settle so that you're not caught up with all that mental turmoil and conflict and pain, is to actually just go to the body. It was coming, almost coming back to the first question again. Go to the body. Where do you experience that? Do you experience that as tension in the shoulders? Do you experience it as a pain in the abdomen, the solar plexus? Where do you experience it in the body? Where is the discomfort? And when you find that discomfort, deliberately breathe into it. Take your breath down to it. You know, you can use the breath again as we do. Now this is in a sense, you've asked about the middle way and you've mentioned the middle way in both your questions. In both questions. The middle way is always about not falling into extremes. Yeah, this is what the middle way is about. Now, there's a number of ways of expressing it traditionally in Buddhism, which I won't necessarily go into. But it's always finding the way between extremes because actually hum normal human psychology is pretty simplistic. You know, it's, for example, we're either for or against something. Actually, issues are far more complex than that. Um, either something exists or it doesn't exist. Well, it might be both. There's your conflict for a start off. You know, holding differences. You know, holding differentials. Um, whether it be, you know, should we mortify the body, this is asceticism, or should we just indulge it? Find a middle way between the two. 
Now, so the middle way is literally always finding um, the complexity that's normally cut out by bipolar thinking. Yeah. Bipolar thinking. Now, this is not encouraged, in Western thinking, it's not encouraged at all. You know, either something is or it is not. Aristotle formulated this. He called it the law of non-contradiction. You know, either something is or something is not. To say something both is and is not is a contradiction. You know? um, this law of non-contradiction goes under another name, actually, in, in Western logic. It's called the law of excluded middle. There are no middles. Yeah. Now, we are trained in the West in general and within Western education and that and Western logic to think in that way. The Buddha is trying to get us to think something between these extremes. So we're always coming to between the extreme. Is it the mind or is it the body? No, it's both. Yeah. We don't have to elevate one above the other. Yeah. We use both. Is it, um, is it existing or is it not existing? Well, it actually might be both. You know, is something good or is something bad? Depends on the situation. Yeah. It's contextual. So what I'm saying to you, when we talk about the middle way in Buddhism, we're often talking about complexity. And actually that's what we're opening up. Life is actually far more complex and actually far more interesting than the kind of bipolar nature of this or that, is or is not, and things like that. And so when we've got conflictual situations, it's actually settling into the difficulty without trying to solve it. Because something will arise out of it. Yeah. Something will arise out of that. Yep. Yep. How do you do that? That's, I, you know, well, that's that's that is that is the question. <laughs> that's the question for every one of us, I think. You know, because this this is the test of the teaching. Now, the first thing is to say, you know, you really dislike somebody. Well, why do we have to like them? We don't have to like them. Uh, we don't have to love them. We don't have to do any of things. But what we can do is not react to them. We can, for example, hold them in friendliness, not in like, and in kindness. We can hold them in those things. Um, but we don't have to react through the old patterns. But I don't think the Buddha's saying we have to go around liking everybody. I think that's too big a task. You know, but what we can do is be respectful, friendly, and kindly. And I think the real test, I think for all of us, I mean, I think this is a real test of our practice, is when you're confronted with the person you find really irritating. Can you listen to them with a kinder manner? Can you be a little bit more friendly towards them rather than just react to the old patterns, I've got to get out of this, this is really too much, I don't want to be with this person. You know, can you stay with them just for that little bit longer? You know, things like this, these are the real tasks of the practice. Um, but those are about respect, kindness, and friendliness. They're not about like or love or anything like that. Yeah. 
Thank you. Okay. I have a question about early suttas. Yeah. Um, the Buddha's teaching um, on the human condition is you know, very impressive. As you said, it's very down to earth. Mm. It has uh, almost a clinical quality to it, you know, mm. diagnosis and prescription. But uh, um, it doesn't have addressed the sense of the sacred, the sense of the mysteriousness of existence. And when we try to look at the world with beginner's mind mm -hmm. and not take anything for granted, then everything becomes mysterious. And, um, and here we are, little specks of dust in the cosmos, mm -hmm. you know, sitting together and exchanging these views. I mean, that's, to me, is, you know, it's, it's extremely mystifying. And so, um, and, and yet, when you try to say something substantive about this mystery, then you get into metaphysics. Yep. So, in the early suttas, does the Buddha say anything remotely connected to this kind of thing I'm talking about? Or? Well, I mean, there's... I mean, there's odd passages where, you know, for example, the unborn, the uncreated, which I commented on yesterday, um, which I don't think are mystical at all. I think they're very practical, very down to earth. I think the mystery of life is revealed in the living of life. Now, the mystery of life is very different to the mystical. And so we don't have to... A mystery explained is no longer a mystery. And that's what metaphysics tries to do. Yeah, we don't have to explain anything, any mysterious, almost I, what I consider to be poetic elements of experience. You know, the poetic dimension of experience, the ciphers that we can use to express our sense of wonder at the world. Actually, that's the word I would use better than mystery, is a sense of wonder at what goes on in the world. And I personally feel, I mean, this is just personal reflection out of my own experience of 40-odd years of practicing, that's what Buddhist practice has given to me, is a sense of wonder about the world. And this was very much brought home to me, and I know Tony's heard me say this before, but when I was studying in Tibetan monasteries, because I was studying at that time Tantra and that, and every Tantric text began with a mantra. Um, this mantra went emaho in Sanskrit, which had a really um, esoteric meaning. It means, wow. <laughs> because it was an expression of the sense of wonder at the universe. You know, everything it is. And it kind of everything followed from that. Just from that sense of wonder about things. Now, I would actually say, what we do in meditation, that's why I was trying to, was trying to introduce the sense of interest and curiosity because the interest and curiosity comes out of a sense of wonder. That this is, yeah, no matter how messed up my experience is, you know, and how difficult I find life is, this is just incredibly wondrous. You know, and I can explore it um, out of that sense of interest and curiosity. Now, if I'm bored, I don't want to explore it. If I find it obvious, I don't want to explore it. 
But the point is, our experience is, if you want to use your word, mysterious, what's going on. Now, we're trying to uncover that. And what we're, not, what we're not doing away with, though, in uncovering the mysterious, is a sense of wonder. That our experience is this way. That our um, experience of the world is this way. You know, and that it can be different. And I think those are very great impetuses for actually practicing. Linked with that, I think, is also a sense of joy. You know? It seems strange that actually in uncovering the origins of dukkha, there's a sense of joy. <laughs> you know, in uncovering our particular patterns of dukkha, there's also a sense of joy that can arise. And that feeds back into more curiosity and more interest. And you know, I think that's an absolutely fundamental dimension to it. Um, and I think it's there implicitly. It's not there explicitly in the Buddha's text. But metaphysics, for me, is actually trying to explain the mystery. That's exactly what it's trying to do, and give you a proper standpoint that the meta-theory is about why things are as they are. Yeah. But they actually are not very useful. <laughs> That's how I'd say. <laughs> Anything more? <laughs> Could sit for 10 minutes to finish. There's one more question and then we'll sit for 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a gloss, but way back. Uh, you need to. Hello? Yeah. Object and Consciousness. Hmm? There's a great book by Antonio Damasio. Yeah. That. The modern scientific neuroscience definition of consciousness is exactly that hmm. analyzing the structures of consciousness that support it, it has to have an object yes. that, that, that addresses itself to. Yeah. He doesn't mention he's not into Buddhism, which is good, because then he... No, no that's, that's inter it's interesting stuff that a lot of neuroscience is actually beginning to, I wouldn't say kind of confirm, but it's beginning to support elements of Buddhist practice and thought um, in a very practical way of understanding what's going on in the brain by watching, looking at brain patterns and and what unfolds within the brain. I mean, Damasio is very good. He's very readable as well, Antonio Damasio. I mean, Descartes' Error, if you haven't, you haven't read it, it's a very good book. Yeah. Okay, shall we sit for 10 minutes, finish off the day? <laughs>